0: This morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of First Samuel. Our study will be in chapter 17, First Samuel 17. And this is a very familiar passage to us, uh, but I'd like to focus on a part of it that we don't usually study because it has some important spiritual principles that are crucial not only to us as individual believers, but also to the body. title of this study is, The Most Dangerous Attitude of All. Because we see here in the words of David's brother, uh, a way of thinking that can really grip our hearts and minds. And it not only, if it's allowed, can damage our spiritual growth and our witness, but it also can do a significant collateral damage within the body of believers. Last week uh, at camp, we did a study throughout the week on the subject of gratitude. And the foundational principle of that was that because of the amazing fact of who God is and what God has done in our lives, our hearts and minds should be so full of joy and so full of thanksgiving to the Lord. But we also saw toward the latter part of the week that if we lose that perspective and we get uh, inner, inner focused and we start to think about what we want and our control, that that leads to selfish complaining, and when we start to complain, we really stop honoring the Lord. Ingratitude springs out of a proud, controlling mindset that puts self ahead of the Lord, and that's never more prevalent than when the Lord is about to work in a mighty way. That hit me as I was driving home, and I was praying, Lord, what do you want me to speak about this morning? And this thought really popped into my mind and that as I started to think through it, I thought that's really true. When the Lord's about to do a significant work, there's always a pushback to it. What's fascinating about this, uh, passage and about its placement in the overall text of First Kings is the time frame, uh, that it takes place in terms of all the other events. And that in itself is really very important for us to understand. The Lord is about to provide a great victory. He's about to do an amazing work for his people in the face of strong adversity and in the face of the fact that it really seems like they're not going to be able to overcome this problem, that this is so strong and so significant that that they're really in trouble as a nation. But God's about to give a great victory. And the way that he does it and the person that he uses to do it points to an even greater work that's before them. But here's here's kind of the overall principle that sets the foundation for our study. Anytime the work of the Lord is about to be significant and about to be profound and for the purpose of drawing people to himself, anytime God is ready to do a work that's going to amaze us and draw us closer to himself and draw other people toward his mercy, pride will always set itself against it. Anytime God's ready to work, anytime God is going to do something significant, pride will set itself against that work. Now, we can actually talk about pride like a person. Because it's so strong and so real, and it's accomplished by the enemy through the unguarded heart of a man or a woman or more. We become so full of ourselves and and we look down on people who don't know as much as we do and, and, and they haven't experienced as much as we have and the devil gets his insidious little claws suddenly in there into our thinking and he pushes pride to kind of resist and diminish the work of God. Let me say at the outset that we all, each of us, have to be very, very careful that we don't contribute to this opposition that we're not part of it. This passage is a reminder and it's an encouragement and it's a warning to each of us to be on guard about our attitude and our actions toward God's leading. Now over the past month or so, two months, I think we have all sensed two things. One is that the Lord is about to work in a mighty way. He wants us to advance the gospel. He wants us to reach people for Christ. He wants us to disciple believers. I hope He wants us to find a building. He wants us to move forward and, and do the work of ministry in expansive ways. But we have also sensed that he is, as He is pushing us that way, that there is substantial spiritual opposition to our people and to the work of ministry. And because of the incredible importance of the first reality, it's vitally important that we don't participate in the second reality. Because the enemy will fight by whatever means necessary, and he likes nothing more than to create doubt and division within the body of believers. Now, there are a lot of ways that that can happen, but this morning I'd like to focus on the root cause behind every one of those ways. And this is exemplified in the text, which we'll read in a second, 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is exemplified not by... An opposing army, the Philistines. It's not by Saul who resented David, and that's starting, that animosity starting to build within his heart. It's not represented by one of David's enemies. Instead, the person who is critical and condescending and tries to impede the work of God that is about to take place in just a few verses is David's own brother. Not the enemy, not Saul, not people that don't like David. His own brother is the one who stands against him. Now let's pick it up. This is before David and Goliath. We won't get into that this morning. But pick it up, 1 Samuel 17, verse 20. It says, David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. Jesse's his father. He's sending him down to see his brothers who are about to go into battle. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Okay, you've got the picture. You've got Israel on one side. You've got the Philistines on another. Everybody is in their battle gear. Israel's crying out. They're ready to to rumble. They're ready to go to war. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line. He's going right up onto the front line. He's not dressed, not prepared in any way. And he entered into the battle line to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words that he had said earlier in the text, and David heard them. Basically, what Goliath is saying is one-on-one, Man on man battle. Whoever beats me or I beat them, that's the army that wins. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. In other words, he won't have to pay any taxes or serve in any way. That person's got everything they need. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, And he said, why have you come down? I want you to put some bite into this as we read it, okay? In your mind, you're following along, right? Okay, put some bite into it. Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep? Notice the condescension in his words. Those few sheep in the wilderness. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? <laughs> Taking it, this is 1st not the first time Eliab's criticized his little brother. What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Now at his father's request, David goes down to the front lines. He's going down to see his brothers who are fighting. In this battle, and he's taking them supplies and food and giving a greeting from his father. And and David can't go to the battle because apparently at this point he's still too young. However, if you drop back a page just days before in chapter 16, David had been anointed king by Samuel. And that was an event that took place as his brothers watched on. So there's already a little bit of dynamic tension here between David and his brothers, and we'll explore that in just a moment. But his brothers were not God's choice to lead God's people. David was the choice. So David comes up. He is not included in the battle. His brothers are in the army, and he comes back uh, up to them, and he's still just this young shepherd. In their mind, he's less than. He's not respected by them, and, and he's... He's younger, so they kind of see him as immature and fragile or whatever the case may be. And, and on top of that, they resent his calling. But David's not naive, and David's very wise, and he's perceptive. And he goes to the battleground, he sees this giant, Goliath. And Goliath is taunting and cursing and challenging the people of Israel for 40 days, and he's speaking against the Lord and being derogatory and crass and and harsh, and he's uh, proclaiming that nobody has the guts to fight him. Everybody's hesitant, which is as much spiritual as it is physical. And David quickly assesses the situation as he runs onto the front lines. He hears this taunting and he sees this giant man close to nine feet tall who had armor that weighed 120 pounds and he's standing there and he's watching this and this man is defying his God. He's cursing and and taunting and David's ticked off. Not only can he not believe that Goliath is brash enough to defy and to defame the name of God, but he's even more shocked that his nation's army, including his own brothers, is scared out of its minds. Israel's in battle gear. They they have cried out. They have declared their war cry and they're standing there ready for battle. For 40 days they've seen Goliath every day. So they should be used to it by now. But as they stand there and they're letting out their war cry, here comes Goliath again. And he starts into the same routine that he's done for the last month and a half. They defy your God. Come out and fight. Send somebody to fight me. We'll do one-on-one. Whoever wins, that's the army that controls the other army. Notice in the text that Israel, as soon as he starts spewing this obscenity and his blasphemy, they're filled with fear and they run away. I've always tried to imagine what David's face looked like as he watched this. He could not fathom that anyone who knows the Lord and knows the power of God would cower to a heathen enemy. So as he runs up breathless to his brothers, because he knows the war's about to start, and all of a sudden this giant steps out and he hears it, and, and as he's standing there, everybody around him turns and runs out of fear. And he's standing there, and I think his mouth, just like in the cartoons, just kind of drops open. Don't you think that's there? Don't you think he just looks on in disbelief? And in verse 26, look at it. He asks two questions. First of all, what happens to the guy who takes this joker out? What happens to the guy who removes the shame of the disparagement of our God and our army? What what happens to the guy who knocks him out? And then even more important, who does this guy think he is? How dare he insult the army of the living God? Now I want you to notice, very important, the Holy Spirit never leaves out anything or puts in anything that's not important. Notice that those in the text, those who are around David, verse 27, only answer the first question. What happens to the guy who defeats that guy? And how dare he do that? They only answer question one. Apparently, they don't have the faith to give them confidence and assurance that this is an uneven fight, but not for the Philistines. This battle, what we're seeing, this conflict, is an uneven fight. And it has nothing to do with Goliath standing there saying, I'm going to beat your guy. For David, it's not even a question. He knows the Lord's going to work in a powerful way. He doesn't see the battle strategically. He never discusses a plan of attack. He never discusses, all right, Saul, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to approach strategically. And as soon as I win the battle, your armies are going to come in from the flanks. But give me some time. I need about 15 minutes. I've got to set myself up. No, David has no plan ultimately, he's going to walk down, he's going to pick up a couple rocks, he's going to walk out there with his slingshot, no armor, no nothing, and he's going to say, how dare you do this? Like a little kid out there in the middle of the field as all the armies watch. That's David's whole plan. But he never discusses it because he doesn't see the battle in terms of military strategy. He sees it in terms of spirituality. There's no question what has to be done. There's no other option for him. There's not going to be any tactical planning. He serves the living God. He's full of conviction, and that's all there is to it. Now, if somebody is defying the Lord, or somebody's doing damage to the confidence of the body, the only way to to respond to it is to stand against it. To say, this is not going to be allowed. See, the people misread his intentions. Look at their response. Look back at the text in verse 27. They they think that he's saying, what's the reward? What what do I get? If I could win this, what's my swag? what's What's my take out of this? But that's not at all what David's asking. He could care less about money and riches and Saul's daughter and about whether he's going to pay taxes not. He doesn't care about that. He's just driven by the necessity to do something because it's so offensive to his Lord. That's how we know that these questions aren't proud or self-serving because they come from the confidence that only faith can bring. There's a determination here in David's heart to make what is wrong right. Israel doesn't have any confidence because they're not looking to the Lord, but David knows that the battle belongs to the Lord. And here's one thing that we should know out of this text. When we take a stand for the Lord and for His work, there will always be resistance. And often it's in the form of a personal attack. What is shocking about that in this text is the depth of resentment from his older brother, Eliab. David's full of trust in the Lord He's full of confidence. He knows there's only one obvious solution, but his own brother who knows him well is actually offended, actually put off by that approach. And notice in the text, the vindictiveness, this is in verse 28, the vindictiveness in which Eliab attacks David. He's not just saying, hey, um, bud, brother, come here. i got to talk to you for a second. Listen, you're you're young and you're a shepherd, and I know you're idealistic, but this is real serious, and I, I need you to back off just a little bit. We're, we're trained for this, and, and and you need to just let us do this, okay? I, buddy, I appreciate your your passion. You're you're a strong kid. I I know you got a lot of fire in your belly, but 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 you need to go home ask the lord to help us but but we got a battle here that's that's nowhere in the text instead what we see is that eliab is hot he's incensed he's ticked off it says his anger burned against david he is deeply angry he's insulted he's embarrassed he's put off He couldn't be more frustrated and spiteful and critical. And it just spews out of his mouth. Now, there are two parts to his indictment of David. And we need to understand these to see just how far off he is because then we're going to draw some application to our own lives. First of all, notice what he says. He says that David is proud and insolent. The word here means to be arrogant and presumptuous. In other words, to flaunt your superiority in the face of less capable people. So as Eliab sees it, here comes little David, his puny little brother, who doesn't know anything about anything and has always talked to big game. Here comes his little brother being insolent, saying, well, I know what to do. And Eliab is full of hatred toward him. And we see the harshness of his words. Apparently, he thinks that David is cocky and egotistical. I mean, he told these stories about killing these fierce animals out in the wilderness with his bare hands. But how could he have ever proven those things? And maybe the little brat just wants some attention. Maybe he's always trying to be angling towards something else. I mean, there were eight sons, so he's kind of got to make his way and get noticed, right? Don't you think that's the tone? Don't you think that's that's behind that? We've got to read Scripture with human emotion. This is not just, oh, David, you shouldn't be doing that. This is angry, he's spitting, he's spiteful, he's upset. And more than anything, he says to himself, my little brother is showing me up in front of my friends. And maybe the charge is fair. Maybe David does have a little edge to him. Maybe he is a little naive and conceited, but that doesn't explain or warrant. Look at the second accusation that he makes. In verse 19, he not only questions David's motives, he calls him wicked. The word means exactly that. Bad, ethically uh, ethically um, uh, evil. Wrong in every way spiritually. This is not just annoyed criticism, this is a harsh insinuation that David is morally reprehensible and that is proven by his pride and the shirking of his responsibility. Of course, the irony is completely lost in Iliad. The irony of this accusation, he doesn't see it. His own pride is off the charts. He hasn't taken any responsibility to defend the Lord from this attack. And he now, because of his problem, criticizes somebody that is serving the Lord. Sometimes as believers, in our relationships, in our extended family, at work, as we're out in the world, sometimes even within a church, this is how we get treated. People demean us and tear us down with false accusations that they're guilty of themselves, and they imply that we don't care. Notice Notice the little dig here in verse twenty-eight. Uh, uh, where did you leave those couple sheep we've given you to watch? Since you can't handle anything else, but what'd you what'd you do with the baba's, David? Come on, what's up? Did you leave those five sheep out in the wilderness? Who's going to take responsibility for that? Boy, Dad's going to be really ticked at you. We give you just a little bit. You can't even do that. You come running out here telling us what to do. I mean, that's the emotion of the text, right? That, that's what he's saying? He says, you don't get it. You're not smart enough. You're not righteous enough. You don't understand what's going on. We need to recognize this morning as individual believers in a body of believers whose job is to build one another up. That this is really the ultimate expression of our pride to suggest to somebody else You're just too unwise to know what I know. Preachers have to be careful of this. People that minister have to be careful of this. To come across as, well, I've got the truth and you don't. Let me tell you what to do. Let me tell you how you should live. Well, I've been studying this for a long time. I've been a Christian a lot and I've been through a lot of experiences and, and you just don't get it. We have to be so careful of that. And I've seen that often in churches and it does nothing but grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's an attitude of arrogance and superiority that, that shows that it is not of the Lord. It's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. They're <laughs> from Galilee. Nazareth of all places. And your disciples, you've got to be kidding me, Right? uneducated, uncouth. Look at those guys. They're eating on the Sabbath. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, that that reflects on you. We are the Pharisees. We are educated. There's an attitude of condescension. and What they miss is that in Him is all the mystery of the gospel and the false expression of truth. You see, pride distorts our thinking so much, and we need to commit ourselves to fighting against it. Why? Well, because pride has a shrapnel effect within the body. Pride, when it hits, does damage to what's around it, it weakens people's faith and it incites others to be cynical and stubborn, and it puts the focus back on us. Iliab's dangerous attitude is what every believer and every church body needs to guard against. It's a blinded arrogance that causes discouragement and doubt and division, rather than conviction and confidence and cohesion. You'll know when pride is having its way because people are discouraged, they're full of doubt, and they're divided. But when humility reigns, there will be conviction and confidence and cohesion. And the difference in the text is obvious. It's the difference between the last line of verse 26 and the last line of verse 28. One is a statement of strong faith, while the other is a statement of proud selfishness. Now we have to ask, what causes that attitude? We can understand that somebody who hasn't been humbled and redeemed by the grace of God might think that way, but how can someone who knows the Lord think that way? And i got to say this morning, we are all open to it. There's not a person in this room that is immune to, to this problem. So we have to fight it before it starts to try to yank us back into our old way of living. And that's why we have to recognize when and why pride influences our heart and mind. So let me give you four things this morning and then we'll pray. First of all, I want you to see how Eliab is controlled by his jealousy of David. Go back a page to chapter 16, verse 6. Pride influences our thinking when we become full of jealousy. Chapter 16, verse 6. On God's leading, Samuel goes to Jesse's house to find God's future king for Israel because Saul has failed. And the Lord is disappointed with Saul's disregard for him, he's disappointed with Saul's carelessness. In leading the nation, he's disappointed with the fact that Saul never was a man after his own heart. And God, because he was rejected by the people, wants somebody that thinks the way he does. So Samuel goes to his house, and the sons start to come out. And it says in verse 6, notice they come out in order of age. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Solomon fall, uh, excuse me, Samuel falls into the same trap that the people had when they chose Saul. He looks at him and he says, "Wow, this guy is strong and confident and tall." This has to be the guy. And God says, time out, wait a second. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're attracted to the outward appearance, but I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the heart. I have rejected Eliab because his heart is not right. We see why later. And the bigger slap to Eliab's ego is that instead of him and instead of his brother's, Samuel walks up to David and takes the oil in the midst of his brothers, the text says, and he pours it onto his head. And don't think that doesn't have something to do with what happens in chapter 17. Eliab is not an evil person. Even Samuel thought that's the guy God's chosen. But here's the problem, and this is what affects us. He held on to the hurt of not being God's choice And carrying that personal affront day after day caused him not to praise the Lord for the right choice, but instead to resent the Lord and to resent David. When we feel slighted or or, or offended because we haven't gotten the attention that somebody else has, then then we start to think, well, how can I damage them a little bit? It's as old as junior high, right? Right? Well, they're more popular than me and all, all, all the other friends like them more than they like me. It's the Facebook syndrome of junior high. And, and, and we feel a little slighted and then we think sometimes, well, I'm going to do something to say something to spread a rumor about them. or, or do, you, you know the routine here. This is what Iliab does. Well, how can I hit him? Because as he's standing there with the Philistine army right there, and little brother comes running up, I've got the answer, I've got the answer. How dare somebody do this? And he still pictures in his mind as he and his brothers are standing in the yard with shock that their little brother, their puny little runt of the family, is being declared king. And I think Gilead couldn't get that picture out of his head. He couldn't get past it. So instead of acknowledging God's hand at work, instead he lashes out at pride and he accuses David of something that wasn't true, hoping it will discourage him and undercut him. That's what jealousy does. Then second, would you see, that his pride sprung from his own guilt. He was the soldier. He was in the army of the Lord. Shouldn't he be saying, hey, guys, time out. Wait a second. Why aren't we standing up to this joker? Why aren't we offended by this uncircumcised Philistine who dares to defy the living God? See, Eliab knew the truth. And you have to ask, why doesn't he step up to challenge Goliath in the power of God? But how could he? Because his heart wasn't right before the Lord. And don't you think it embarrassed him to know deep down that he wasn't spiritually prepared to take that stand? See, his problem really wasn't with David. His problem wasn't that his little brother was the one going into the battle ready to take on Goliath to defend the Lord in a certain victory. His problem was that it should have been him, but his heart wasn't prepared. He didn't have David's unwavering faith. He didn't have David's steadfast commitment to the Lord. Apparently he had everything else because Samuel says, look at this guy. But maybe he relied on his looks and his popularity and his resume a little bit too much instead of preparing his heart like David had as he sat out with those crummy few little sheep that they gave him. And he looked up at the stars and said, when I consider the work of your hands the heavens which declare the greatness of God. And as he sat with his paper or parchment and he wrote little songs and made up little tunes in his head and says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. As David did that, preparing his heart and being sensitive to the Lord, Eliab was off busy doing other things that had nothing to do with God. And his heart wasn't right. We heard this again and again with the testimonies of those that were baptized at Village Creek. As they stood and said, I used to trust in myself. I used to think that if I had everything that it would all be alright and I realized that it was rubbish, that I had had no sufficiency in myself and I was disappointed. And then I trusted the Lord and God started to do a mighty work in my life and I realized that the only thing that I need is Him. See, Eliab hadn't hit that point yet. He still had guilt, but instead of surrendering himself to the Lord, he allowed it to dictate his thinking and control his actions. And it bred resentment against those that love the Lord. This is a point of self-examination for us, that whenever pride arises in our hearts, instead of running with it, we need to sit down and say, Lord, am I harboring sin? Am I harboring guilt? Am I harboring resentment against you and against others? Am I failing in my accountability? Lord, forgive me of that. Strip me of that. I don't want that anywhere near me because I cannot serve you as long as that exists. The most glaring warning sign of this is that we become critical of people who are doing the work of the So he's got a problem with jealousy, he's got a problem with guilt. Third, quickly, he's got a problem with poor theology. Now that would seem a strange thing to say, because we know nothing about his view of the Bible, or angels, or spiritual gifts. We don't know his eschatology, what's he believe about the end times. But we do know that he didn't believe, listen now, he didn't believe that God would defend his name and his people. And that's where all theology starts. Does the Lord save people? You can say yes. Does the Lord save people? That's the key question that every person needs to answer. If there is a God, if there's not, let's go home. But if there is a God, then He can only take one of two approaches. Either He doesn't care about people and He lets them die in their sin, For he offers a way of salvation. Now we know that the one true God provides the only sacrifice from our sin that buys us from sin. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those two verses prove that God is not only willing to forgive us, but He is sufficient to do what we can't do for ourselves. And because He is merciful, He will save those who trust in Him. Now look back at the text in chapter 17 and verse 28, because there's a subtle clue here about Eliab's beliefs. Notice what he says. I know your insolence... Wickedness of your heart. Look at the next line. For you have come down in order to see the battle. I want you to notice the last word. How different. What would it tell us about Eliab's heart. If he said to David. I know you have come down to see the victory. Instead he says. David, you little creep. Can we allow that word in the text? You little creep. I know what you've done. You've come down to watch the fight and watch us lose. Now you'll get your angle. Now you'll have dad's approval. Now you can go be king. I know why you're here. You're here to watch us get slaughtered, you little creep. There's no sense of victory. You know why? Because Eliab doesn't believe there's going to be a victory. If he did, he'd be out there with a slingshot himself. David, I know you've come to see the battle. No belief in the sufficiency of God. No belief in the salvation of God. No belief in the redemption of God. No calling on His name. He only sees it through the filter of His pride and His solutions. And when we look for solutions through our own efforts rather than humbly, quietly yielding ourselves before the mighty hand of God, we will fail every single time. And here's how we recognize that this is happening. Last point. Pride incites us excuse me, pride incites us to disparage someone who's trusting in the Lord. There is such a contrast between David's lack of discouragement and Eliab's impatient frustration. David walks up and he's got the anointing of God and he's got the hand of God in his life and he is confident in his faith. And he walks up and says, who is this guy? How dare he defy the arms of the living God? He's going down. That guy, guys, that guy's going down. God's not going to allow that. Why, why are you guys standing here? Why, why for 40 days have you been listening to this garbage? That guy's going down. There's a difference between that and the uncertainty of his brother who can't see the potential about what the Lord is about to do. And here's what's ironic. Eliab's name means God is Father. But he's not trusting God. He doesn't have the confidence of his brother. Instead, he goes after his anointed brother, and he resents his passion, and he finds it easier to sit around with his friends and say, can you believe that idiot? Can you believe the brashness of that kid? I can't believe he did that. And they kind of laugh at him, and they're, they're re- resigned to Goliath's superiority. They're criticizing somebody who actually thinks they can win. It's easier to do that than to have the same courage about the Lord that David has. And as soon as David comes along, certain that God will win this battle when they stand up for his name, it put the spotlight on Eliab's lack of faith And he's so miserable that the light of conviction that he has to deflect the attention to somebody else. You know, criticism almost always springs from our own guilt and our own unhappiness with our disobedience to the Lord, and it leads us to criticize somebody who is obeying. Now, what's dangerous about that is it becomes contagious, especially within the body, to the point that nobody shares David's confidence that when he goes to fight Goliath, Not even Saul. In fact, they try to discourage him from even trying. But here is what is more contagious than doubt and criticism. What is more contagious than doubt and criticism is faith and confidence in the Lord. Have you ever been around somebody whose faith is steadfast and unwavering no matter what's going on? Hey, just, we're going we're gonna to trust the Lord. You go, are you kidding? Look at the circle. No, we're going to trust the Lord. And they inspire you to either trust in the same way or just to say, you're crazy. That's what David was like. When you got around David, he's singing songs. Great is the Lord. He is. I mean, He's just, he's just. He's always about the Lord. The Lord's good, isn't he? Oh, he rescued me from that bear. It was wonderful. And God, oh, I was singing. those Watch of the sheep. I was looking up at the stars. It was amazing. Look at God's work. And boy, God is gracious, isn't he? And everybody else is like, what? David was contagious. He believed in the work of the Lord. He believed in the word of the Lord. And over and over again, that confidence and suspicion of God was proven correct. And I have to wonder, as everyone watched him walk out, to Goliath with that slingshot, oh, I pray this is true, that Eliab looked at him with amazement and instead of resenting David, I wonder if in that moment he repented of his pride and his resistance to the Lord and just stood there going, I can't believe what I just saw when David goes, whap! I hope at that point, Eliab said to himself, I can't believe what I just saw. How could I have doubted? The Lord is at work. The Lord is at work in our midst. Which side are you on? Standing there going, I don't know. It's a big road ahead of us. I don't know how we're going to get through it. We're saying, God, you're at work. We're going to stand back and watch the salvation. Father, we repent this morning of our pride. We repent of our lack of faith. We repent of our hesitation to trust You. Lord, sometimes the obstacles look so big and we get full of ourselves and we even maybe come to the point of criticizing somebody that we don't think gets it when all they're doing is trusting the Lord. Father, we're confident this morning that you are doing a great work in our midst and that there's so much more that you want to do in these days that are increasingly short. And Lord, we want to know what that is. We will seek you. And we want to follow you in that. We will be obedient to your leading. But Lord, for us really to be right in the center of your will, we need to be thankful. And we need to trust. Not critical, not discouraged, not full of doubt and fear. The battle is yours. We're your soldiers, ready to follow your command, ready to do the work that you have set before us. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would not have the heart of Eliab, but that we would have the confidence of David. Not defeated by the culture, but ready to take a stand. This is your world. You are Lord. Nobody can stand against you. And as your children, Lord, we're humbled by that. We can't understand why you would do that. But we're your children. You've saved us and redeemed us. As your children now, we need to be obedient to you and follow you and stand for you. So, Lord, I pray this morning in our hearts that you would inspire us and challenge us, that you would confront us where there is pride and where there is a critical spirit. And Lord, you would cleanse us right now. Lord, in hearts all over this room, I pray you would cleanse us. That we would cry out to you and say, God, I'm holding on to this. I'm harboring this. Lord, forgive me. Lord, as you open up that wave of forgiveness in our midst, now that you would lead us in a powerful way. Lord, do that in my heart. We look forward with anticipation, the great and mighty work that you're going to do. Keep us faithful. Help us to serve you all the days of our life. We thank you and praise you for your grace and mercy, and for the sufficiency that you have in our lives. And Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.